You're listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast. This week, we bring you a five-part series of messages Warren Faber presented on interpreting the gospel from Gull Lake Bible Conference 1975. Dr. Warren Faber was dean, executive vice president, and professor emeritus at Cornerstone University and a graduate of the Moody Bible Institute. Now, here is Warren Faber on Today in the Word radio. Today, we're ready to begin our, our course in interpretation to actually do some interpreting of the Bible. You'll need a Bible. You'll need a notebook or a piece of paper and a pen. And I'm going to give you some direction as we, uh, as we begin in this. And then I'm going to get you involved in interpreting a very familiar portion of Scripture found in the book of Revelation, chapter 3 and verse 20. I remember when I was visiting Israel that I met a man who had sort of lost his soul and things had gone wrong in his home, and he said, I'm going to go back to Israel and see if I can find myself. And he had an interesting experience while he was there because as he was walking by a synagogue, someone said, come on in. He said, oh, I couldn't come in. I don't have a hat. And you know, men have to wear a hat in synagogue. They said, we've got a hat. Come on in. And he protested a little bit. They finally said, if you come in, we'll let you read the scriptures. And so he got up and he read the scriptures in the Hebrew language. And he was back at the hotel telling about it. And I said, did you understand what you read? And he looked at me and he said, no. He could read Hebrew, but he didn't understand a thing of what he was reading about. Well, there's some people that uh, have that problem with the Bible. Even in English, they pick it up and they read it and they don't understand much about it. Now, you can't interpret the Bible without understanding the process. Just like you can use electricity without having to understand fully how it works. But the more you know about the process of interpretation, the better interpreter you will be of the Bible. And so I want to say to you, first of all, assume when you are reading the Bible, assume the responsibility of an interpreter. There are some people who want to take this away from you. They want to say to you, look, you can't interpret the Bible. You don't know enough about the Bible. You don't know Hebrew. You don't know Greek. You can't interpret the Every time you pick up the Bible, say, by the grace of God, I'm going to understand it. I'm going to interpret the Bible. Now, understand that the basic objective of an interpreter is to find out what the author meant by the words that he penned to convey his meaning. We're saying here, what did John mean when he wrote his book? We say something else. We say because God is the primary author, what did God mean? You and I never go to the Bible and say, I'm going to give it some meaning. We, as an interpreter, say, what did the author mean? 
Now, I've diagrammed the process, and for those of you who don't have a workbook, probably the best thing to do is just to write down these words in succession and realize that it follows this process. You start with the text, and that's the first word. The second word that is important is meaning. The third word, understanding. The fourth word, implications. The fifth word, significance. And then there's the matter of communication, the sixth word. I'm going to talk about each one of those for just a moment. Text. What do we mean by text? By text, we mean the printed portion of the material which we're analyzing. By Bible text, we may mean a book of the Bible that we're studying, or a single chapter, or even a single verse. But the text is the printed page. And what a wonderful thing it is to be able to have a Bible in your language, in your hand, printed on paper, and for some of us, almost readable. Get a Bible with big print particularly for children when they're starting to read the Bible. And it isn't too bad for some of us who get a little older to find a Bible with bigger print. But by text, then, we mean the printed portion of the material. When we talk about meaning, that's the second thing, meaning, we insist that the text has only such meaning as was intended by its author. Now, occasionally when I'm teaching in a seminary, I have a little fun with this. I write on the blackboard, no classes tomorrow. Then I turn around and I look at my class and I say, do you understand that? They say, oh, yes, we understand that. It's a silly thing. But no matter how far along you get in school, even into graduate school, the things that you like most about school are recess and vacation. <laughs> so I write down, no classes tomorrow. And they say, yes, we know what that means. And I said, just a moment. This is a quotation. And I put it in quotation marks. And I said, now let me tell you who the author is. And I write down underneath it, Karl Marx. <laughs> and then they read, no classes tomorrow. And I said, do you think Karl Marx was talking about dismissing school? No, he was talking about a violent overthrow of our culture and all governments in which there would be no class distinction. Now, really, I have no right if I pick up a book written by Karl Marx to say, no classes tomorrow means that we're going to dismiss school. I have to say, what did this man mean? And when you and I come to the Bible, it's doubly important because we have two authors. We have a human author and a divine author. It's doubly important for us to say, what did the author mean? Now, you ought to respond to that if you have a workbook, because I want to impress it upon your mind. The meaning of a passage is determined by whom? By the reader? or by the author. And if you write down reader, you flunk the course. Now there's a third thing that I'd like to direct your attention to. 
Our responsibility as an interpreter is not to read meaning into a text, but rather to understand what the author sought to convey. Now, you can only demonstrate to me that you understand a text when you give it back to me in different words. Now, I know the meaning will change slightly when you do this, but we must be able to communicate this to each other. If you merely repeat a verse, if you merely quote a verse, then I don't know whether you understand it or not. So try to put that in your own language. And you can do that by writing a synopsis or a paraphrase or by amplifying the text. Now let's do a little bit here by way of illustrating it. Supposing I say to you, what does John 3.16 mean? You say it means, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. But I say, what is that verse really all about? And you say to me, well, that's a verse about God's love. I say, that's right. What about God's love? Well, it's, it's about God's love for sinners, for a world that's lost. And uh, I say, uh, and what about his love for sinners? And you say, well, it's sacrificial. He's willing to give himself. And so I say, just very briefly, John 3.16 is about God's sacrificial love for sinners. That's a synopsis. Now, for a paraphrase, we can go to something like the Amplified New Testament, just to get an illustration. For God so greatly loved and dearly prized the world that he even gave up his only begotten Son, so that whoever believes in, trusts, clings to, relies on him, may not perish or come to destruction or be lost, but have everlasting or eternal life. Now, that's a paraphrase. <laughs> now, by amplifying, we, uh, we could merely make comments about every part of the verse. But when you do this, you demonstrate to me or to anyone else that you've come to grips with the meaning, that you understand it. Now, there's something else that is involved in Bible study, and I think oftentimes we listen to men and we say, oh my, he goes down deep. Sometimes we add, he stays down long. And then we don't always say it out loud, but we say, and he comes up awfully dry. Uh, but uh, we're, concerned about, we're concerned about the deeper meanings, sometimes the hidden meaning of Scripture. A good way to get at this is to talk about implications, and let me, and let me talk about that just a little bit. When we talk... The words that surface are like the tips of the iceberg. There's much more beneath them, much more that substantiates these words. And let me give you three illustrations that you may want to write down. One of them is in Matthew chapter 12, verses 9 through 14. It's an interesting account. <coughs> Jesus is uh, concerned here about healing a man. And uh, we read, And when he was departed thence, he went into their synagogue, and behold, there was a man which had his hand withered. 
And they asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath days that they might accuse him? And uh, here's a man. He has a hand. It's withered. He's paralytic. He can't stretch it out. And Jesus says to this man, Stretch forth thy hand. You know what the man could have said? I've been trying to do that all my life. I can't do it. But there are some implications behind this. Jesus is saying, I have power to heal you. And you, if you respond in obedience, will be able to do it. So there are some implications behind that that are very important about who Jesus is and what he wants to do. There's a second reference that I'd like to have you look at. It's found in Matthew chapter 22 and verse 32. We're talking about implications in Scripture. Matthew 22 and verse 32. Jesus is talking here about uh, some things that are important. There are Sadducees who deny the resurrection. And he says to them, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, we know that. We understand that. But we never saw the implication behind those words until we read them here and heard them from the lips of Jesus. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And on the basis of that, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says, don't you know? Don't you understand? That when God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are still alive. Now that's an implication that we didn't see. But Jesus, who knows God pretty well, <laughs> he knew that was behind what he said, and he lets us know about that. Now, the next word that we were looking at here as we were talking about the process is uh, the word that I call significance. After you know what a text means uh, and uh, you've thought a little bit about the implications of the text, the question now is, what does the scripture mean to you? Here is a place where you can now be your own man or woman. You can, your own person, how's that? Here's a place where you can be your own person. This Bible now, this text that you understand, this word from God, you apply it to your own life any way you want to. Because you see, you may have special needs this morning that I don't have or don't know. And the word might just mean something very precious to you by way of encouragement or by way of comfort. For some, it might be a word of exhortation. But here, when it comes to application or significance, you apply it in a way that you want. 
You see, when you take apples, you can do a lot of things with apples. You can squeeze them and have apple juice like I had for breakfast this morning. Or you can make applesauce. Or you can make a Waldorf salad if you have some walnut meats, too. Or you can, you can bake an apple pie. You can make a lot of use of apples. And you can apply Scripture in different ways and apply it to your life in a way that is most significant. And after you've learned to do that, then we're concerned with this matter of, uh, of communicating it to someone else. Now, we've been talking about the Bible and about the process of interpretation. And you say, the way you've been talking to me, it sounds like you read the Bible just like you would any other book. And the answer is, yes, you do. <laughs> you've got to read words. You've got to read it like you read a book. Some people have forgotten that you read the Bible like you read a book. But there are some differences. Someone says, where does the Holy Spirit come in? Well, the Holy Spirit comes in. Let me talk to you about some of the distinctive differences that you'll have as you're reading the Bible. The first difference is that the Scripture has two authors. It has God as its primary author. And all other authors, writers, are secondary authors writing under the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit, revealing God's Word to man. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. So God is behind the human author in this book, and there isn't any other book in all of the world that can claim that kind of authorship. So that's different. It also means that when we pick up this book, we're really concerned about what God is saying to us. What does He mean? This hit me very hard when I was studying and reading the parables I realized the parables in the New Testament come from the lips of Jesus, and I'd been working with them and arguing about them and all of the rest of it, and finally I came to the conclusion, Lord Jesus, you're the one who gave them. Help me to know what these really mean. Well, we have God as the primary author. We also have something else. There are 66 books in the Bible, but there's a unity of thought that runs through the entire Bible. The Bible was written over 1,600 years had 40 different authors, but they don't contradict each other because God was behind each one of them. And so we have a wonderful unity. There's a third thing about it. The truth is expressed in words that will sustain implications because each word is inspired by God. Now there's another thing that's wonderful, and here's where the Holy Spirit comes in. The Holy Spirit who helped produce this book is resident in the heart of each believer, and he's available to us to help us to understand the book. Isn't that wonderful? And then I think there's another thing that is involved here when it comes to reading the Bible. Because the Bible is the Word of God, it speaks to us with authority. And we must respond and say, I'll believe it. I'll obey it. You can't take the Bible and pick and choose. Whatever God says, you must believe. And whatever God asks you to do, you must do it. 
That's the only way to read this book. That's the only way to discover meaning and significance. You can't say, I'll read this book, but I don't want it to touch my life. You won't get very far. Those are some of the differences. Another thing that affects us is our view of history and reality. It's so important for a Christian to realize that he lives in a God-created world. The writer of the Hebrews says, through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. And that's the way we come to this Bible. Our view of the Bible is going to affect our interpretation. There are some people who don't believe this is the word of God, and they interpret it far differently. Our own spiritual sensitivity is going to affect our understanding of the Word of God. And then our view of language and our possession of language skills is going to affect our ability to read and interpret. You have to be able to read. You have to be able to understand what you're reading to be able to read and understand the Bible. Now, another thing that we must be very concerned about is that we must always be in subjection to the Word of God. Our heart, our mind, our theology must always be open to the Word of God, to the gentle, correcting, sanctifying influence of the Spirit of God. Sometimes I say to my seminary class, how many of you believe that everything that you believe is true? And they look at me and, you know, that's quite, uh, quite a position to take just to say everything I believe is true. And so not many of them will put up their hand. And then I'll look right at one of them and I'll point at them and say, all right, tell me, what is it that you believe that isn't true? Well, none of us know of anything that we wouldn't believe it if we didn't think it was true. The truth of the matter is that there are some things that we believe that aren't true, and we're going to test everything that we believe by the Word of God. And we're not going to be afraid if we change your mind. We're not going to be afraid if we learn something. We aren't going to be afraid if we find out truth as long as we find it in the Word of God. So keep open when you're reading the Bible. Keep open so that the Spirit of God can guide and direct you. <clears throat> now, you also need an awareness of language, and you need to develop some language skills. Now, we're not beginners in this matter of communication. Most of us have had formal training in the English language, some of us 12 years of it, some of us 14, some of us 16, you know. We've had some experience in the English language. We've been speaking it, we've been reading it, we've been listening on the radio and television. And if we would rate ourselves, I suppose we'd give ourselves a pretty high mark. We'd say, we're pretty good listeners. Not only that, we're pretty good talkers. In our home, I used to say we had five speakers and no listeners. We were good talkers. I suppose the second 
rating we would give to ourselves would be in reading. We'd say we read fairly well. Probably the thing that we do least well is write. And most of us don't think we're very good writers. And when I read students' papers, I'm not sure that anyone is a very good writer. Uh, but <laughs> we, we have some problems with that. But now, I want, to, I want you to notice something. And I've got a diagram here, if you have a workbook, and I'll explain it to someone who's listening. In writing and speaking, we operate in one way. In reading, we operate in just the opposite way in which we write and speak. I'm speaking to you. What I say starts out, first of all, with an idea. I have an idea. I want to get it across to you. The only way I can get this idea to you is not draw a picture of a light bulb, you know, and say, idea. You say, what's the idea? <laughs> I have to put it in words. And it comes through to you. And these words come in sentence form. You're always listening for a sentence to come along. So you can put the words together. You know what they mean. And when speakers speak, they ought to use short, crisp, sturdy sentences. Because people don't listen long. They can't always put sentences together. But not only do we put them in sentences, we put them in patterns. If I'm telling a story, that's one kind of pattern. If I'm reciting poetry, it's a different kind of pattern. But we pattern our speech. Now, when we read, we do just the opposite thing. We start out, first of all, by knowing what kind of book we pick up. If you go to the library, you can go to a section, you can pull out a book on science fiction. Or you can pull down a dictionary or an encyclopedia, and they're all marked. And it's a good idea. It's a good idea to know what kind of a book it is that you're picking up. This is why we spend some time talking about what kind of book the Bible is. Then we start out by reading sentences. We look up words we do not know, and then the ideas begin to break in upon us. That's the way that works. We start out knowing the pattern. We're working with sentences, words, and then the ideas come through to us. So that the process of writing and reading is just really the opposite. I say, what well, that got to do with interpreting the Bible? Well, let me just remind you that the sentence is a basic thought unit, and uh, you ought to be very much aware, particularly of the main verbs of a sentence. They normally carry the meaning. Now, having said all that, you still have your Bible open to Revelation chapter 3, verse 20? Well, we're going to talk about that. You know that verse. That's a familiar verse. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and will sup with him and he with me. Now, I'm going to do this wrong. Oh, it really isn't wrong. It's just not the most efficient way to do it. Inductive Bible studies always start this way. And I really think that they waste a lot of time. But I'm going to start this way, and you kind of read along and follow with me. We're going to analyze the words first. 
Remember I told you it would be better off to start the other way around. But we're going to analyze the words first. Behold, look, watch. I stand at the door and knock. Now those are all simple words. I'm looking for the verbs, stand. Now I have a little advantage because I can look these words up in a Greek lexicon. That'll help me a little bit more than you because you're going to have to look at the English. But I look it up and it says, look, I'm standing there. I have taken my stand at the door and I am knocking. Now, the knocking, there are two kinds of knocks. The Greeks have two kinds of knocks. One of them is to take and wrap you at the old door like you're going to, you know, ding it to blathers. Spurgeon's comment. Then there's the sort of polite knocking where you just let people know that you're there. Now that's the kind of knock it is. Behold, I have taken my stand at the door, Jesus is speaking, and I'm knocking. If any man hear, and I look up here and it sounds, I mean it comes out here. If you hear, you hear. My voice, and open the door, I will come in and sup or eat with him and he with me. Well, I've only learned two things. That Jesus has taken a stand at the door and that he is knocking. He keeps on knocking. And uh, that it's a kind of polite, gentle knock. All the rest of it is very apparent in the English language. I look at the sentence and I realize that it involves a sort of complex sentence and the verbs are standing and knocking and hearing and opening and coming in and eating. And so I've analyzed the sentence, and then I say, where does this paragraph start? And I realize that I've never asked that question before about this particular verse. Now, if you had a modern version of the Bible, you would find that it is paragraphed. In the King James, every verse is paragraphed. That's a wretched way to write anything because the verses are artificial. They were put in later. And I think it destroys the continuity and sometimes we just, we're always reading the Bible by reading verses instead of reading paragraphs. But uh, notice that the paragraph starts with verse 19. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous therefore and repent. Look, I'm standing at the door knocking. Now isn't that interesting? Starts out, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous therefore and repent. Look, I have taken my stand at your door and I'm knocking. Well, I learned something there. I got some things joined together that I never joined together. And now I began asking some more questions about this. What's this all about? Well, this is a letter from Jesus to the churches, and this is to the church of Laodicea. And every letter is structured. There's always a command to write, and there's one or more titles for Christ, and there's a message from him and a promise to the faithful and a summons to everyone with spiritual ears to hear. And when I read this whole letter that starts at verse 14, I find out that it ends with verse 22, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. 
And I say, you mean the Lord Jesus is standing and he's knocking at my door? He's speaking to me? I'm one of his? I'm a member of the church? And all of a sudden, after going through all of this, the light dawns, and I'm sitting in my study on the second floor, and I walk to the stairway, and I holler down the stairway, Glennis! That's my wife's name, G-L-E-N-N-Y-S. Took me a long time before I learned how to spell it. Glennis, I said, what do you feed God for dinner? And she said, what's going on with that guy up there? He said, what? I said, what do you feed God for dinner? Because for the first time in my life, I've read that verse and it has sunk in. Behold, I have taken my stand at the door and I am knocking. If any man hear my voice, and open the door, I will come in with him, and I will eat with him. Now I know that the Lord Jesus has spread a wonderful table from which I can eat, and I'm eating at that banquet table that's spread with all of the goodness and grace that God can provide to a man, but here it says, I want to come in and eat with you. And I say, what do you give God for dinner? I've lived all of my life without realizing that Jesus wants to come in and he wants to share with me, but he wants me to share with him. I say, Lord, I don't have anything to give you except trouble. He says, I'll take that. I say, I don't have anything to share except worry and disappointment and problem and failure. He says, that's all right, I'll share that. And I find that I have a verse here that tells about how Jesus wants to come in and share my life. And he said this to a church that said, I'm rich, increased with goods, have need of nothing. So Jesus comes and knocks on the door. And about the time Jesus really comes into our lives, we don't think we're so rich. We don't think we're so independent. We say, what are we going to share with him? We realize we're very empty. Our life is meaningless. All right, now, a little bit of an idea of what's going to happen to us if we start reading carefully for meaning and significance. But I'm going to ask if you have a workbook that you turn right over to page 54. I want to give you a little bit of guideline now on really doing interpretation. Uh, doing uh, careful reading. You always begin with a trustworthy text, and you can trust the Bible that you have in your hand. The scholars who know more about this than you and I do have carefully taken all of the thousands of manuscripts that uh, are available, and they've carefully compared them, and they give you a Bible that you can trust. Now, you can take the King James, or you can take the New International Version, or the New American Standard Version, and these are good texts that you can work with and trust. I like to have one of each. I like to have a modern version in my hand as well. And uh, I myself usually will open my Greek New Testament alongside of it so that I can check the text at 
they're working from, but you can work with the English. Now, the next thing that you want to do is to learn all you can about the author, about his way of thinking, expression, and purpose. Now, it's a very simple thing. You're reading a book by the Apostle Paul. Open up a Bible dictionary and read about Paul. Just read about him and say, well, that's great. Now I know a little more about him. After you've done this once, you won't have to do it again. But learn everything you can about the author, about the human author, his way of thinking, expression, and purpose. Here we would be looking at, at uh, John as the human author, but more particularly in Revelation 3.20, we've been listening to Jesus. He's been writing the letter. And one of the interesting things, and you'll just want to do this, just take a little time. You'll notice that every time as he prepares to write, he tells you something about himself. And he's always everything they need, everything you need, everything I need. But there are some wonderful descriptions of Jesus and who he is and what he does in those first seven letters. And you know Jesus, so you understand the author and how he feels. And then you, you want to get an overall view of a book. It's an important thing to get that kind of overview of what the book is all about. Start out. Don't read the book of Revelation without getting some helps and reading. If you have a study Bible, what the book's about, it'll tell you right at the beginning. And if you don't have a study Bible, a Bible dictionary, or a one a volume commentary will give you a little idea of what it's all about. Learn all you can about it before you start reading. Good idea. When I open my little Bible dictionary, I find, I find that the writer feels that the book of Revelation has to do with the return of Christ. And I said, well, I think you're right there. And he tells me that it proceeds in four parts. And I think I'd put it in about seven parts, and I'll have my own outline. But it doesn't help for me, it doesn't hurt for me to, uh, to review. And now I need a tentative view of the passage. Don't say to yourself when you come to the Bible, I don't know what this means, I don't know what it's all about. Get a Bible that is paragraphed and has some headings over it and read the heading. And say, oh, this is a letter to the church at Laodicea. We see, yeah. well, it's a letter to a church. And now, there's a verse there that I'm interested in. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Ever since I've been a child, I've heard that verse. And a preacher has told me and a Sunday school teacher has told me that Jesus is standing at the door and he wants to come in. And I want to open my heart to him and I ought to open my heart to him and believe and be saved. Now that's true. Jesus does go to seek and to save the lost. He wants to come in into the heart of every believer. But the truth that has been lost is the one that we discovered here. This is a message that is written, and when we start analyzing it, we see that it's a letter to the church. When we look at where the paragraph starts, we realize that he's talking to people whom he loves. He says, you know, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. This is a church that was lukewarm. Jesus doesn't want Christians to be lukewarm. 
This was a church that declared its independence, didn't need Jesus anymore. He doesn't want that. He says, look, you've locked me out of your life for all practical purposes, and I want you to know I'm on the outside looking in, and God ought not be on the outside looking in on the lives of Christians. And it starts talking to me. He said, look, I want a fellowship with you. This salvation is not only salvation from sin and a home in heaven. It's fellowshipping with me, sharing your life with me. And we say, Lord, what a wonderful, wonderful promise that is. And we let him in. Now, I've got to test that out. I've got to test that out and say, is that really the right interpretation? Does that apply to the believer? Well, every word in the, in the text will fit it. It's legitimate, even as the other interpretation is a legitimate interpretation. Now I have to say, is this the way the author speaks? Is there a correspondence here? And you remember how we've had this message of fellowship before. If we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And Jesus is talking about fellowship here. This is an important part of the Christian life. Does it, does it fit the passage here? Does this really fit the passage? Well, yes, it's a letter to the church. It ends, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. It fits. Is this truth? consonant with? Does it compare with? Is it a truth that is taught throughout all of the Bible? And we say, of course it is. God started out creating man to fellowship with him, and he walked and talked with him in the cool of the garden. He said when Adam wasn't there, Adam, where are you? And God has wanted to have conscious fellowship with us throughout all of history. He made us to be his people. He talks to us through his word. He wants us to talk to him through prayer. He wants us to share our problems with him, and he'll take all of them. And he comes to our house and says, look, let's just sit down and have coffee time together, shall we? And uh, we say, Lord, I don't have very much to share with you. A little bit of trouble with my uh, son this morning, and I lost my temper, and... He went off to school feeling miserable, and I was more miserable than he was. And Lord, this isn't a very good day for you to come calling on me. And we, we just sort of exchange. I give him my misery, and he gives me his blessedness. And I give him my despair, and he gives me his hope. And we just keep on trading off here. He comes in. I sup with him, and he sups with me. And shares my life, and then one day he comes and he says, I'd like to come in. We say, Lord, you know what? I don't have a single trouble to share with you today. Would it be all right if I just praise you a little bit and thank you and bless you? He says, my child, I thought that day'd never come, but I wouldn't mind that for lunch today. And the Lord blesses us. Now. This text, of course, means a lot to me, and I've just written down a number of things that it means to me, but if I'm going to share this with someone else, I have to put it in a, into a pattern where I can communicate it. And so this is a pattern 
that I put it in so I can communicate it with others. I say, this verse tells about Jesus knocking at the door of the Christian's heart seeking fellowship. Well, hallelujah. Read that Bible. There are some things in there that are significant for you, and you can discover meaning and significance for your own life. Just start doing it. Shall we pray? Father, we're so thankful for this opportunity we've had of talking about interpreting the Bible. Help us to be better interpreters and then to grow, to grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. For Jesus' sake, amen. You've been listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast and one of five messages Warren Faber presented on interpreting the gospel from Gull Lake Bible Conference 1975. Dr. Warren Faber was dean, executive vice president, and professor emeritus at Cornerstone University and a graduate of the Moody Bible Institute. Audio copies of this and many other messages from the podcast are available at moodyaudio.com. Today in the Word Radio is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of the Moody Bible Institute.